0: to welcome. Hello and welcome to the official podcast for the 27th annual First Conference, happening June 14th through 19th, 2015, in Berlin, Germany. I'm your host Martin McKay,
1: and I'm Christian Riley. To find out more information about the conference, please visit www.first.org. And now we join our interview in progress.
0: So this is Martin and Chris. We're talking today to Miko Hippanen, who just gave the keynote on the second day of the first conference. And how are you doing today, Miko?
2: I'm doing excellent. It's been a really nice day here. I was surprised about the size of the audience. First, it's just becoming bigger and bigger every year. huh?
0: Yeah, and luckily we had the O um, B last night, and so yeah, it could have been bigger possibly, and people could have possibly been a little bit more awake.
2: <laughs> I think... Uh I think people were listening, and that's that's always nice when you're speaking to see that the audience actually pays attention and had very good questions as well.
1: So is it it's interesting that FIRST has a slightly different audience than quite a lot of security conferences. Is that one of the reasons why you like to, to come back to FIRST on a regular basis?
2: Yeah. I mean, here, the audience... Big, big part of the audience works hands on with the things that I'm speaking about. They, they actually know what's happening in the field. So I speak quite a lot in, in different events for general purpose audiences. So, you know, I have to do a lot of explaining of the terms and the landscape. And here we can just get right into it and spoke, speak about what's happening right now and, and how it is affecting the industry and everybody who works with security.
0: So the title of your talk was Securing the Future. And one of the things that you kept bringing up is Welcome to 2015. Mm hmm. What is so special about 2015 to you? I mean, is it is it a pivotal year for us, for the internet, for the world?
2: One thing that is changing right now is the way we do computing all together. Of course, this has been happening for a couple of years already, but it's, it's really at a key point right now. And that means that more and more, oh, the larger and larger part of the devices that we use look like computers but actually are not computers. If you look at your smartphones or your tablets and compare what you can do with those to what you can do with your Mac or, or your PC, you can do almost exactly the same things with one big difference, which is if you are a programmer, you can program your computer. But you cannot run your own programs on your iPad or on your, your, on your smartphone. So these devices are actually closer to playstations than to real computers, and it also means that a very big part of computer users today are being turned from creators into consumers, and and this is happening right now. So yeah, I think it's a it's pivotal if not pivotal year, it's a pivotal time.
1: But obviously, with the the lesser control. Um, the end users have over the devices. Obviously, as a result, things are becoming more secure in that direction. If, if you have very limited control over what you can install, what you can run, and where you can install those programs from, there's a benefit there for security.
2: Absolutely, there is, and it's actually showing very well. And that benefit is clear to see from the fact that we have no malware problem on PlayStations or Xboxes either. So these devices are locked down, they're restricted. The same applies to our iPads and our devices. So yeah, we are in many ways, becoming better with security. If you compare where we were 10, 15 years ago and where we are today, much, much larger amount of the devices we use are are secured from the ground up because of the restrictions they have in place. But it is a big shift nevertheless, and I'm not really sure if we've understood all the implications this change from creators to consumers actually means.
0: But another point you brought up is that we are not the consumers, we are the product in many of instances. Mm. You talked about social media and how we're selling our privacy for access to Facebook, Twitter, this Google thing. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and it didn't have to be this way. Like when I set up the first website for, for our company in 1994, I remember having this discussion with the guys in the lab about the future of the web. I mean, this web is going to become big. It's so nice. It's easy to use. You can just click on pictures and it works. So we were discussing about how it will look like in the future. And and we all agreed that there's going to be a lot of content online eventually, maybe even news online, maybe even weather reports will be online. Who says that we couldn't have movies on the web one day? So we were actually talking about that. But then we hit a brick wall about how are we going to fund all that, like how are users going to pay for the content? Nobody's going to make content available for free. There has to be a way for users to pay. And we we assume that browsers will have a button for paying, like here's a button, I pay half a cent for the right to read this news article or two cents to read today's Dilbert. That's what we thought. That's how it could have ended up with, but we didn't end up with that. Instead, we ended up with this system where everything's being paid for by profiling the users and selling their profiles to advertisers.
1: But do you think that if the average end user realized how much data is being collected and and how things are being paid for through their own privacy um, and through advertising, do you think they would choose to pay for things? Or are we in a situation where the majority of people who use the Internet don't care that they're sharing this information? They just want things for free. They just want things to be easy. They don't want to pay for everything individually. They just want everything at their fingertips without having to worry about it.
2: We've already broken the Internet. We've already taught everybody that everything on the internet is free. Everybody takes that for granted. They're not going to change their mind anymore. People are not going to start paying for content. They would rather pay with their privacy because that's the way they've learned how things work. And they might be creeped out about it, especially when they learn about you know the the worst part of privacy breaches that these systems can bring them. But they're not going to change their behavior. People are apparently willing to give up their privacy for a for the right to watch cat videos for free from YouTube.
0: And exactly how much privacy people are giving up was you kind of highlighted in a sc- sort of scary way, looking at Twitter, looking mm-hmm. at targeted ads, looking that you can choose to send an ad to somebody within uh, a hundred, m- with a 10 mile radius of a certain spot, of a certain age range, of a certain uh, financial capabilities. I mean, that's a lot of data.
2: Yeah, and it's especially. I mean, I was surprised myself when I realized that the profiling done by services like Twitter is not just based on their own data, that they actually buy data from uh, data warehouses which which collect consumer spending information from the real world and then they combine that information with their own information. So it's not just that, you know, you can target your ads based on, based on where people are and what they do on the service. But, you know, like I showed in my examples, you can find people who are ladies who are pregnant or who are eating Kellogg's Rice Krispies, who have an American Express card, and who like to buy a lot of tequila. You can actually find these tidbits of information. And Twitter even shows you the exact number of users they have for each of these categories. So they have 375,000 active tequila drinkers, and you can target them if you want to.
1: One of the other points that you brought up in uh, in your presentation was that security companies are becoming more and more the target of attacks. Are you worried about that? Is, it, is that something that, that concerns you? Are you
2: stupid? Of course I'm worried about that. Who wouldn't <laughs> be worried about being being a target? And I, I guess we've known for a while that we are a target, but it really brought it home when we learned about the Kaspersky incident and the fact that one of the leading security companies with arguably some of the best skills in the whole industry, they were owned thoroughly for months, and they didn't find it by themselves. So how, how do we hope on defending our customers' networks when we can't even defend our own? In a,
0: an interesting... Extension of that is that you highlight the fact that if you look at what is a valid military target, if you look at what a valid uh, war target is, security professionals have entered a realm where we are valid targets for nation states, and if we're not already expecting us ourselves to be targeted, we need to really give that some conscious thought.
2: That's right. I uh, I I was uh, tipped by a friend of mine whilst we were discussing this this. The scenario to go and read the relevant parts of the Geneva convention so I did and that's exactly what it says the valid military target during a time of crisis the definition of that would perfectly fell, perfectly well fits any security company today it would fit us, it would fit Kaspersky or Symantec or anyone else and by the way I, I'd still like to return back to the Kaspersky incident and just give them a, a you know, credit for coming out and publicly telling the world what happened because very few companies would have done that and we have to give Kaspersky full credit for telling what happened.
0: Most definitely agreed.
1: Well, I guess it just goes to show that no matter how good the company is, how many experts they've got, there is no there's no secure company. There is no way that anyone can say that this, this company and all the data they have is secure. So where do we go from here? Are we ever going to reach that point where we can say that companies that have our data are securing it accurately and
2: correctly? There are ways of fighting. There is some hope. The highest hopes I have are for new technologies that I call or or we, we use the term digital judo for and as you know in martial arts or in many different kinds of martial arts you use the attackers strength and the attackers power against the attacker himself and there are ways of doing that in the online world as well which means when we defend our networks against the most powerful attackers there are, the most powerful governments there are actually ways of fighting back, and we are working on those right now.
0: But we're still at a point where a Word document that's been infected, an AutoCAD document that's been affected is sent to a user, and that seems to be the most effective means of getting malware to a targeted system.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, targeted attacks are still, very large part of them are still done with email attachments. Of course, we have seen other mechanisms, including Tor exit nodes or... Web exploit kits, or you know, watering holes, or USB sticks, and and uh, or trojanized hardware sh- sent to your target. Um, last year, we learned about this conference after which the conference participants received a CD-ROM in mail with pictures from the conference, and the CD-ROM had a targeted attack. So there are other ways of 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 doing targeted attacks, which shows that some of the old mechanisms, including email attachments, might not be working as well as they used to.
1: There's a lot more attack vectors nowadays. I mean, even you talked a little bit briefly about Internet of Things mm-hmm. um, and the fact that we even now have to patch our light bulbs because sure. of insecurities. Goddamn. Yeah. So, so we're, we're bringing more insecurities into our networks instead of learning from, from the past. And Internet of Things is a prime example of, of mm-hmm. just jumping in without thinking about how we should secure things from the, from the ground up.
2: And security is not a selling point for Internet of Things. When people go buying a fridge... They're not going to be thinking about security at all, which means when IoT companies build connected devices, security will always be an afterthought. It will always be a bolt-on. It will always be lacking. And we are we're going to, in that sense, we are going to the wrong direction. In security, in, in many places, we are going to better direction. Like Windows is getting better in built-in security. Many of the vendors, which used to be awful, like Adobe or Oracle, are getting better Devices are becoming more restricted, which means they're becoming more secure. But at the same time, more new devices, new kinds of devices are coming to the marketplace with security which leaves a lot to hope for.
0: And with the Internet of Things comes a whole range of privacy concerns that are above and beyond even the targeting that that social media has because mm-hmm. now you can look at the physically what somebody was doing. Sure. you can look at their heartbeat. What were they doing at X time, and that gets scary too.
2: It is scary. We are going to a scary future. So welcome to 2015.
1: Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us, Mika. Really appreciate it, and uh, hope to see you again next year at the first conference.
2: All right. Thanks. Thanks, guys.
1: You've been listening to the official podcast for the 27th Annual First Conference, June 14th through 19th in Berlin, Germany.
0: To find out more, check out www.first.org. We both hope to see you in Berlin. Thanks for listening.